This morning I want to speak to you from God's Word here at the beginning of Paul's letter to the church at Galatia about the threat of legalism to the gospel of grace. Several years ago, a group of us from Cornerstone went on a mission trip to India. If you've ever been to India, you know it is a land filled with literally millions of gods. They're everywhere. Cab drivers have gods on their dashboards. The streets are lined with religious vending stands. People even will stop and bow down and pray to trees planted along the sidewalks. I've seen it firsthand, and it is an amazing but sad sight. Suffice it to say, the people of India are extremely religious. They're always striving to gain a right standing with God, but sadly, peace remains elusive. Friend, while grace is foreign to the people of India, but they're, because they're searching for favor from God by worshiping false gods, can I just say to you this morning that it is also foreign in many churches as well. In reality, all of us struggle to some degree to grasp the truth that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, we are born with a nature that insists that we can make our own way to God. Even after we're saved by grace, there are still traces of a performance mentality that we struggle with. And we think that we can earn God's favor by what we do or what we don't do. It's all too easy to lose sight of the grace that's at the heart of our faith and get caught up in a works-based kind of religion. The essence of legalism is trusting in our performance rather than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've just been singing about. Without fail, this will lead us to love our performance more than Christ. Friend, Galatians is a book that was written specifically to counter legalism and to address the centrality of grace in salvation. Those who taught the three R's of religion, rules, regulations, and ritual, sought to undermine the ministry of grace. Paul's introduction here in verses 1 through 5, which we looked at um, last Sunday, um, and we talked about Paul's authority to write this letter in the first place. Paul sets the tone for the entire book right here in these first five verses. Now, as we looked at last week, we noted that the letter is addressed to churches in Galatia. 
young churches that Paul and Barnabas had started on their first missionary journey. Well, after Paul and Barnabas left, a group of uh, teachers, a group of people called Judaizers had infiltrated the church and were teaching that in order to be saved, you had to believe in Christ plus you had to basically become a Jew. In other words, you had to follow the laws of the Old Testament. Specifically, you had to be circumcised. Well, Paul presents himself as a warrior for the cause of grace against the attack of legalism. He is encouraging us to step into this fight and to take a stand against those who would seek to enslave us to man-made rules and regulations enforced through guilt and shame. So here's what I want you to take from the message this morning. Right standing with God is not based on religious performance, but on the finished work of Christ alone on the cross. Because legalism is such a harmful threat to the gospel of grace, we need to know how to recognize it. What is legalism? How do you know it when you see it? And then we need to understand how the true gospel refutes it. So let's look first how legalism is recognized. I want to consider three aspects of legalism that I hope will help you recognize it when you see it. First, you know legalism when you see people performing in their own strength. Now don't forget, Christ was prominent in the Judaizers' preaching, but it was Christ plus what man can do himself. In other words, believe in Christ, they said, and then try as hard as you can to obey the laws and the rituals of the Old Testament. A contemporary form of this era is the idea that we're saved by grace and then we live the Christian life by doing the best we can. Essentially leaving grace behind. Friend, that's legalistic because it involves performing in your own strength. <clears throat> Second way to recognize legalism, we perform by our own standards. You see, performance-based faith is living by rules and regulations that we ourselves establish. It involves adding things beyond what God has already defined as the basis for a right standing with him. For instance, in contrast to the two simple laws that we, that the two commands that Jesus himself gave, love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, in uh, addition to those two laws, the Pharisees developed a system of 613 laws that you had to abide by. 365 of them were negative commands, 248 were positive. But they only produced 
a heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness. Friend, the New Testament contains many principles that are for our well-being, but you and I don't need to add to them. There's as many that God intended already in his word. Sadly, though, today, let me just say, there are countless ways in which we come up with additional rules beyond what we have in the New Testament as a standard for our faith in Christ. We say Christ plus baptism. Now, a lot of people would look up there and see Carter May being baptized this morning and think, oh, Carter's been saved now. No, Carter was saved before he was baptized. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. And you ask a child, how do, how do you become a Christian? And they say, by being baptized. That's what they'll say. That's their natural response. Why? Because that's what happens after salvation. And that's what they see. And they associate it with salvation. And we need to do a better job of teaching them that no, salvation is not what gains you salvation. Salvation, uh, baptism is the result of salvation. It is the first act of obedience for one who has been saved. But we do that if we're not careful. Or we say Christ plus church attendance. Or Christ plus reading your Bible every day and praying every day. Now those are good things to do. But you're not saved by attending church. And you're not saved by reading your Bible every day and praying every day. These are all man-made additions to the only requirement for salvation, which is faith alone in Christ alone. A third way to recognize legalism, we perform for God's satisfaction. The legalist is one who works to earn God's pleasure. The idea is that by doing certain things, one increases in favor with God, that God will be more satisfied with him. The thought is, in order for me to be right with God, I must do something. I must add my own good deeds on top of what Christ has done so that God will look at me and be pleased. Frank, can I just say to you this morning, based upon what Jesus did on the cross and your faith and trust in him, God will never look on you with any more favor than he already does. Regardless, he will always be satisfied with you based upon not our good works, not our righteousness, because the Bible says our righteousness is as filthy rags in his eyes, but based on the righteousness of Christ alone. A contemporary form of this error is the idea that we're saved by grace and then we live the Christian life by doing the best we can, essentially leaving grace behind. That's legalistic because it involves performing by your own standards in your own strength. We perform for God's satisfaction is the thinking of the legalists. Now, in the case of the Galatians, that's something that they added to Christ, to grace, was circumcision. They taught that, the, that circumcision was the way to ensure a right standing before God. So consequently, you enhance your spiritual standing by what you do, something you do. That mindset 
is more prevalent today than you might imagine. We are prone to fall into it if we're not careful. We think if I want God to be satisfied with me, then I must give 10% of my income uh, to the Lord. Or I must attend church every Sunday. Or I must read my Bible and pray every day. I must not go to certain places. Or I must not do certain things. If I do this, God will then be satisfied with me. But what happens when we miss days reading our Bible? And miss praying. What happens when we're not in church on Sunday? Is God any less satisfied with us? No. I think he's concerned because he knows those things are good for us. They're what help us to grow. And those are things that uh, cause us to increase and mature in our spiritual faith but they certainly don't cause God to look with any more favor upon you than he already does. Let me just say, hear this carefully. Whenever you hear the word and in conjunction with belief, you know you've just heard from a legalist. Whenever you hear belief and you've just heard from a legalist, you know you're talking with one who espouses performance-based faith. Friend, Jesus said it all boils down to only one thing. John chapter 5, verse 24, we read these words from Christ himself, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Put your trust in Christ. Christ alone is the basis of true faith. The startling truth of Christianity and one that a lot of people just cannot grasp is that God's satisfaction with us is not based on our religious performance, but our faith and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ is what satisfies God. Max Lucado tells the story of a woman who for years was married to a harsh husband. <clears throat> Each day before the husband would go off to work, he would leave a list of chores that the wife was expected to complete before he returned at the end of the day. Clean the yard, stack the firewood, wash the windows. If she didn't complete the task, she would be greeted with his explosive anger. But even if she did complete the list, he was never satisfied. He would always find inadequacies in her work. After several years, this husband passed away. Sometime later, the woman remarried. This time to a man who lavished her with love Affection, adoration, tenderness. One day she was up in the attic and she was going through a box of old papers. She discovered 
one of her first husband's list of chores that he had written for her to do. As she read that sheet, a, a realization caused A realization caused her to a tear to form in her eyes, and she began to weep. And here's what she thought to herself. I'm still doing these things, but no one has to tell me. I now do it out of love for him. Friend, all the things that I've mentioned here this morning, baptism, that's a command of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says, don't, don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. The Bible strongly suggests we ought to spend time reading the word. We ought to spend time praying and worshiping. But those are not things that is required in order for us to be saved. Those are things we do in response to God's love and his grace that he's poured out on us because we know those are things that will help us in our walk with the Lord. But they are not requirements for salvation. Um, uh, we, there is nothing we can do to earn God's favor um, legalism, can I just say, legalism has ruined more lives than you and I can imagine. I guarantee you there are people out of church this morning because they were basically forced out because of a different mindset or a different way of choosing to do things than the church in which they grew up. And they have turned their back on the church and literally walked away from God. And you know people like that in your family. I know people like that. And it is sad that the church has done more damage in causing people to leave the faith um, because of legalism. Friend, I would encourage you today, if legalism was a problem in your past, or if legalism is something you still deal with, I would encourage you today to come back to grace. To grace. Brush aside the false teaching that has caused you undue guilt and doubt, and come back to the true gospel salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone that's the gospel that and nothing else added to it faith in christ and his finished work on the cross all because of god's grace we receive god's gift of eternal life well that's how you recognize legalism. We perform in our own strength. We perform by our own standards. We perform because we want God's satisfaction. 
want you to see in the second place how Paul refutes legalism. Um, there are two truths that refute legalism in the verses 3, 4, and 5 that I want you to see here in this opening uh, introduction of Galatians. The first truth that refutes performance-based faith is salvation is free. Salvation is free. First and foremost, Galatians reminds us that Christ has already freed us from sin, death, and the law. How have you been freed? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Over and over, Paul reminds his readers, it is grace that has freed them from the law and its penalties. Paul starts the letter. Look how he says this in verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace. Now, a lot of people would read that and just move right on into reading this letter. They wouldn't even stop to think about what those two words mean. Right here in these two words, you have the whole thrust of Paul's message in Galatians. Grace and peace. These two words contain the whole sum of Christianity. Grace is one of Paul's favorite words. In fact, he uses it over 100 times in the New Testament, almost twice as many as any other New Testament writer, all the New Testament writers combined. What is grace? It is unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. The old acrostic still says it best, God's riches at Christ's expense. Not because of anything I do, not because of anything you do, We don't need to go through rituals. We don't need to live under regulations. We can have peace with God today if you simply understand grace. Because the grace of God brings the peace of God in a profound way. When you understand in all of my sin and ugliness, and unrighteousness, God the Father, who is holy, 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 looked down one day and said, I love you in spite of the life that you've been living. You are dead in your sin and trespasses, but I have good news because I love you I sent my son, Jesus, to come to earth to live a perfect life, a life that you nor anyone else is able to live. Jesus lived. And because he lived perfectly and he obeyed all my commands, he went to the cross, gave his life as the perfect sacrifice for sin. And because I care about you and because I love you, I'm offering you his sacrifice as the payment for your sins. And all you have to do is trust, believe that when Jesus died on that cross, he died in your place. He took your sins. And if you will accept him in your heart as your Savior and Lord, I will erase all of the junk in your life. I will wipe the slate clean. 
and you will be totally forgiven for everything only because I love you and I care about you and I knew you couldn't do that for yourself. Friend, that's grace. That's salvation. You can't add anything to that. God says, grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Here at the beginning of this letter, Paul teaches God's salvation is free. It is because of grace. Now we see how this plays out through the work of both God the Father and God the Son. How is salvation free? First of all, God the Father planned our salvation. Look in verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And if you look in verse 5, it says, according to the will of our God and Father. Friend, grace is from God. The gospel is from God. It is God's will that his people would know his grace. He designed it this way. Salvation is God's doing. God planned it. He planned it from the beginning. God's satisfaction in you is not dependent on your pursuit of him, but his pursuit of you. That's one of the reasons the Judaizers were criticizing the gospel of free grace that Paul had been preaching and, try, and they were trying to discredit Paul's ministry. God planned our salvation. God pursues us. God presents us with the free gift of his son, which is why Paul says, abandoning saving faith on, uh, for uh Saving faith, which is based on Christ alone for any other kind of faith, a works-based kind of faith. Paul says, if you do that, you are abandoning God himself. Because God says you are saved by grace and that not of yourselves. It is my gift to you. Salvation is free. We see that in the fact that God the Father planned it. Secondly, God the Father planned it. God the Son performed it. Look in verse 3 and 4. He says, grace and peace come not only from God the Father, but also from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are closely identified in the work of salvation. The Son is the one who gave himself for our sins, Paul says there in verse 4. This is the core truth of the gospel. Salvation is not about what man can do. Salvation is about what Christ has done. And he has done everything necessary for our salvation. Friend, God's satisfaction is not based on our performance, but on the performance of Christ. The only way we can be accepted before God is through Jesus Christ. As soon as you add anything to grace, you lose grace altogether. Salvation is free. God the Father planned it. God the Son performed it. 
wholly apart from anything we have done or would ever be able to do. You remember what Jesus said as he hung on the cross right before he died? It is finished. It is finished. Can I just say, anytime you put a demand on someone to make them think that it's faith or grace plus something else, you have denied the truth of Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. There is nothing to be added to it. There is nothing else to be done. It is finished. That would be a good place for everybody in this room to stand up and jump and yell and say, Hallelujah. It is finished. It is finished. You don't have to add anything to it. God has done everything you needed to be saved. It's all of grace. Salvation is free. Secondly, I want you to see, salvation is freeing. Why have we been freed? In, other, in order to live an unshackled life. Not on an exhaustive list of do's and don'ts, but on a grace-motivated, spirit-empowered life of love for God and others. Now, there are two aspects to the freeing effect of the gospel that I want you to see here in these two verses, the latter part of verse 4 and verse 5. First of all, we are free from sin in this world. You know, justification, which is what happens when we accept Christ into our heart at the time of conversion, we are freed from the penalty of sin, okay? Now we're in that second stage of salvation, which leads to the third stage that will take place in heaven, which is glorification. In this middle stage called sanctification, the Bible says we are free from the power of sin. And Paul points out right here, he says Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Now this present evil age refers to the world we live in in all of its ways. Martin Luther called it the devil's kingdom. I agree with Martin Luther. Friend, we no longer have to live like the world. It doesn't matter the direction the world is going. It doesn't matter if the world um, is going um, uh, away from God. It doesn't matter if the world rejects God in all of his ways. You don't have to live like the world. Paul says we've been delivered from this present evil age. So let me just say, anybody who's gotten confused this morning, that by what I'm saying is, is that if we're saved by grace, we're free to live like we want. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you're free. Salvation is free. And because salvation is free, you are now freed from the power of sin, the power of sin in this world. Because you have Christ living in you. You're controlled by the Holy Spirit. 
Loving what this world loves. We, don't, we no longer have to live like this world. We no longer have to pursue what the world pursues or love what the world loves. We no longer have to indulge in what the world indulges in. We're free. We are freed into Christ. The gospel frees us to live as we were created to live. In Christ. So let us praise God the Father and humbly give him thanks that he has freed us from the kingdom of Satan. The second thing about our freedom in Christ is we're free to share with the world. Look at verse 5. Paul says, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives us his, or God gives us his free grace for his glory. Why did, Paul, why did God give Paul such grace? So that he could preach the gospel to the Gentiles and bring glory to God. David Platt puts it this way. It was private revelation for public communication. Friend, this is the kind of grace that frees us to speak that frees us to tell, that frees us to teach, that frees us to proclaim the gospel. This is the kind of grace that enables us to go as a volunteer missionary to places like Honduras or Kenya or Boston or elsewhere or bear witness to Christ in your home or in the workplace or in your classroom. You and I have the privilege and the responsibility as those who have received God's grace to share this gospel, this good news with everyone. Grace frees us to pass along the good news and in doing so to bring glory to God. So, salvation is freeing. It frees us from the power of sin and it frees us to share the gospel with the world for the glory of God. Friend, God has provided salvation through the finished work of Christ. The moment a person accepts by simple faith the truth that Christ died for his or her sins and rose from the dead, God declares that person justified, saved, righteous, and rescues that person from this present evil age. And at that moment, our names are written, are removed, as it were, from the roll of this world and written on the roll of the Lamb's book of life. And there is nothing that you have to do to keep it on there or anything you can do for it to be removed it is all by grace grace pretty simple message isn't it so simple even a little child can understand it and believe it no wonder Paul marveled that the Galatians had exchanged this simple clear message of grace for a complicated gospel 
of religious rules and regulations. And Paul says here at the beginning, grace and peace to you. Right standing with God is not based on any religious performance, but on the finished work of Christ alone on the cross. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now let me just say to you this morning, if you're here and you've still been thinking, maybe something you were taught years ago, that you had to stop acting a certain way and you start, had to start acting in another way before God could accept you. I just want to help clarify that for you if I can. If you know in your heart of hearts you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord because you think you're not good enough or you're not ready you haven't done enough good things for God to accept you that tr- surely God could not accept you in the condition you're in right now. I want to help you understand this morning. If you keep waiting until you're good enough, you will be waiting forever. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of God's glory. That's every single one of us in this room. But the Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. If you will simply believe that God in his love sent his son, Jesus, to this earth, he died on a cross as the perfect sacrifice for mankind's sins, including yours. And God says to you today, regardless of how you've lived your life, regardless of how far away you are from me today, that's immaterial. Because what I want for you is for you to know that I love you. And I'm calling you to myself. And if you'll trust me, and if you'll believe that Jesus died for you, and you'll accept his sacrifice as the payment for your sins, I will right now, this moment, I will erase all the junk in your life. I will wipe the slate clean because of Jesus and what he did. And all you have to do is simply put your faith and trust in Christ. Accept him into your heart as your Savior and commit to follow him as the Lord of your life. And you will be my child forever. And you will never lose my favor. There is nothing you could ever do for me to be displeased with you because I accept you on the basis of Jesus Christ, my son.
Friend, if you've never done that, can I just say, I can't think of anything more foolish than to turn down an offer like that. Especially when we know there are eternal consequences involved. You can settle today your relationship with God. And there's nothing you have to do. Just simply trust Jesus as your Savior. It is finished. Is it finished in your life? It can be if you'll accept Christ as your Savior and Lord.